Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly, as always. Well, not last week because he was on vacation, but we got him back now. And our first guest this week is Peggy Chait, a compliance consultant, who's going to talk to us about this new FINRA effort, or at least a FINRA consideration, to, uh, I guess, increase somehow increase diversity in the financial services industry. Bruce, why don't you kind of walk us into this, if you will? Yeah. Hey, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Hi, Peggy. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. My uh, pleasure. Jeff, yeah, I was. I reached out to Peggy because a couple of weeks ago we did a little story about a some comment letters that people in the industry, including the notable online brokerage uh, Robinhood, sent in uh, in response to F- Finra want Finra essentially said to the industry in April. We want to make the industry more diverse. What kind of barriers, what kind of, what are the rules or processes that may create unintended barriers in the, uh, in the business? And, and Robin Hood and a couple of other people, including Peggy and her firm, commented about the form U4. And this seemed to light a fire in, the, in with you and other people in the newsroom um about this form u4 and and what and and how it's uh, and the information right that it's looking for so first off with 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 peggy i just want to ask you peggy about what is the form u4 before we get into the whole diversity issue just what is the form u4 and what is your your background and just tell us about yourself a little bit too and your background and history working Oh, sure. Okay. So the Form U4 is a standardized form. It's actually the, an acronym is the Uniform Application for Securities Industry. And all brokers have to fill it out, right? Exactly. Well, if you want to be licensed, either if you want to be licensed or you are what they consider a non-registered fingerprinted individual, if you have access to certain books and records, you need to be fingerprinted, and then you have to fill out one page of this. Right. So if you want to sell securities. If you want to sell securities, right. if Mutual you want to be a license. annuities. Yeah, anything. Any, anything. any kind of securities related a product. And there's about 620, 620 or 630,000 licensed people in, in the industry, and about half of those people, right, to my knowledge – are retail-facing salespeople? I don't know the specifics, but I would think that, yes, retail is a great part of that. The institutional world is a little bit smaller. Right, right. Okay. So again, what kind of information do people need when, if I were to sit down and fill out a U4 today, what what are they going to ask me? Okay. So general information, name, address, the, your social security number, the firm that you will be employed with, the fingerprint card, if you have a number that needs to be submitted on it. And uh, then they get into personal information, which is identifying information, your name again, full name, date of birth, country of birth, your sex, your, you know, uh, which at this point is either only male or female your height, your weight, your hair color, your eye color, any aliases. <laughs> and, and and how long is, is this form that you have to fill out? It's, well, depending on how many pages of it, the form itself it runs 39 pages. 39 pages. 39 pages, depending, of course, is how much, you know, you have to say. They cover things also like... Disclosures, which is a great section, great many pages of this has to do with disclosures. If you've had any kind of either regulatory or criminal or bankruptcies or liens or judgments, all of these items have to be disclosed to FINRA. Right. And I think that's something good, right? I mean, if you have a bankruptcy, right, in your background and you're applying to be a broker, that should be disclosed to the public because I should, I think the public, you know, a, a potential customer or a client would want to know if your broker has had a, 
bankruptcy problem in the past, right? I don't agree. Um, you don't agree. Huh. I don't agree. I don't think necessarily. I understand what FINRA is getting out by asking for that information because they think potentially you may do something that is unworthy of being licensed and take advantage to make money because obviously you've had a financial history that shows that you've had difficulty. But people can be bankrupt for different reasons. That's very true. A person can go through a divorce, for example. Very true. And they can become bankrupt because their salaries don't cover enough to support alimony and child support simply for that reasons. Or they had debt because they were unemployed. I mean, just look at the pandemic. I can't, I, I don't know numbers, but I would assume that after the pandemic, there's a lot of people that'll have to fill out this form very differently. So, so Peggy, let's shift then to the topic here of, uh, that was great background on the U4, thank you. But let's shift into the topic of diversity and what FINRA requested back in April. It wanted comments about diversity. And then your firm responded specifically about the Form U4, I, I believe. Yes, we responded. You know, what was FINRA looking for, though, in your words? First? They were looking for feedback from the industry as to how to reach out to be more inclusive in the industry. And I'm, I think it's wonderful to want to be inclusive, but I think there's a, the other side of that as well, which is being intrusive and also reverse kind of discrimination can happen in this as well. I can tell you, having been in the industry for 40 plus years, that it was not a very diversified industry when I started out at all. It was basically white men and women, for the most part, that were involved were either registered sales assistants or secretaries. Yeah, we've all we've all heard stories about the 1980s and the 1990s. Trust yes, me. yes. So, um, and all that you have goes look at the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Uh, the, correct. Look in the movie, and you get your picture there. Correct. And so, even in terms of diversity, not just having women, but having people of various ethnic backgrounds, it was not. It was not. That was not widespread. It was a, an anomaly. So, what did have, you say? How did? What's up with the U4, the Form U4? What did you say to FINRA about that? Okay, so basically what I said is that um, the questions that they ask are really meaningless in terms of trying to identify and diversity, you know, for hiring purposes. And, you know, what do you really disclose or what do you discover by disclosing? For example, they ask a person's weight. And one of my comments is, why do, you, why do you need to know how much I weigh? Right. Okay, what does that mean? What does that really mean? And, and of course, for someone who's been in the industry for 40 years, I can tell you that it's very depressing to look at my weight <laughs> back in 1980 and look at my right. weight in 2021. Okay. Right. And what is it? You know, is a firm, what I had said is, does a firm look for people that are of a certain weight? If you disclose that you're 300 pounds and your height is five foot two, would you not make an assumption based upon that? Would you discriminate? But how about arrests and criminal disclosure? I think that's where you and Mm -hmm. I think it was a lawyer from Georgetown and Robin Hood all kind of um, uh, coalesced in your comments. Absolutely. So, so yes, criminal disclosures are required on the U4 form. In my career, I've seen various types of criminal disclosures. A lot back in the 1980s were related to drug charges. And now the, the question is, given that, say, for example, marijuana has been legalized in many states, would these disclosures that have to be made on a U4 form be discriminatory? Also, things that someone did in their youth. For example, I, had, uh, I worked at a firm where the chief financial officer had a grand auto larceny conviction when he was like 20 years old. 
<laughs> and so that was disclosed on his form U4. Right. He, right. he was he was probably in his late 60s when I met him. What difference does this make? The truth is my feeling is no statute feeling, of limitations or, so, or something like that with, no, with these kinds of things. No. Because what happens is even if you don't put something down, FINRA has you get fingerprinted to be licensed and they will come back to you and say, we found out from your fingerprints that you did X, Y, and Z, and you did not disclose it. Peggy, first of all, I did not know that FINRA needed to know your weight. That's kind of interesting. (laughs) And your height. And your height. I Mm -hmm. don't have any idea what that's about unless you're trying to put together. Do they include eye color too, Peggy? Your eye color, your hair color. So what happens if you were brown and now you're gray? What difference does it make? Yeah. All right. Some of that stuff, I don't know, unless they're trying to put together a company basketball team or something, I guess <laughs> your, your, your measurements shouldn't matter. But my question is about things like, I mean, I can kind of see if I'm looking to hire a financial advisor and I find out that they have a criminal record, or I would like to be the one to make the judgment on whether or not I want to hire somebody who has a criminal record. And obviously I can use my own judgment when I see this person is now six years old and they they did something, you know, they got caught for shoplifting when they were you know, 19. I can be the one to make that judgment. But you get into, to me, it kind of gets into a gray area when you start to say, well, we don't want to have petty crimes there or misdemeanors, but we want some. And some misdemeanors can be pretty serious, especially if they happen recently. This is where I, you know, to me, I'm I would appreciate having knowing the criminal record of somebody who's going to manage my life savings. That's all I'm. That seems right. But but this this information does not go to the public. This information goes to the employer and FINRA. So the question is, what shows what up I on broker check then, Peggy? I thought like criminal issues had to show. I don't up, think that the on- criminal issues go there. I think disclosures, certain disclosures, but the but the actual details are not in there. Oh, okay. Well, see, okay. to me, that's even scarier. Right. You know, so, that that so, should be available. So what I think is, I think all securities-related disclosures should be made. If someone absconded with a client's funds, if they uh, did a Ponzi scheme, et cetera, et cetera, I'm in full support of those disclosures being made to the public. But I don't think that everybody's life has to be hung out in front of an employer. And I think if an employer gets an FBI result that goes back to them, they can have a personal uh, talk. They can have a personal interview with this individual and based on their discussion, make a decision as to whether or not they feel free to hire them. Right. But. I don't know. To me, even first of all, this information should be available to the public if it's available to FINRA. And second, why wouldn't an employer want to know about somebody's criminal record? But they will. They will know it from the from when the FBI returns the fingerprint. There Uh is there is information that is provided to the firm on this person if they have any kind of record. Uh Okay. So I'm saying I don't think anybody should be hung out and dried unless there is discussion first and then there's an evaluation. I really don't. I think it's, yeah. un- it's unfair to that individual who, as you say, may have done something in their youth, may have done, a, you know, had a drunk driving incident. And now they're, they're 55 or 60 and, and they've been... You know, there are things I think people have long, you know, longevity in the industry. They could Uh have started out. I was 21 when I started out in this industry. Right. What if somebody what if somebody had a committed a crime more recently than in their youth? You would know about that. You You would know know about that. And, And would it matter? If somebody but you're you saying know, you're making a distinction though, Peggy, you're saying it doesn't have to be on the U4. I'm saying it doesn't have to be on the U4. Uh-huh. I'm saying that a discussion and that the firm would find out about it anyway. Because exactly. I think there's there's a matter of privacy. I mean, I think when you start filling out everything on a form 
including liens and judgments. Uh-huh. You know, if you have a lien against you, why do they need to know that? Why? What do you, what do you think should be on the U4? Well, I mean, I think basic information about a person's history, employment history in the securities industry. I mean, when when you put down, they want to see if you've been a homemaker. What if you're, you know, I mean, I don't think. Do they use that terminology? They do. They do. Homemaker. Homemaker. Okay. So, so it's, it's sort of, I mean, I don't say it's discriminatory. or something? Yes. Yes. Yes, a homemaker. It seems like this needs to be rethought and updated. When was it the all last needs time Sinra to be ever... Re- exactly. It all needs to be rethought, and it needs to be sensitive. It needs to be sensitive. And I don't think, you know, I do think that asking these kind of questions are discriminatory. If you look at someone's age, I'm not saying they shouldn't put down, but why should that be a focus? There's an age okay. bias, you mean? It is age bias. Yeah. Then, yeah. you know, if they say, oh, well, listen, we've had, you know, 20 applicants and they're all 60, right. there's going to be age bias. They may want a young firm. Right. Or, yeah, but- for example, let me say one other thing. You put down your residential history, not just where you live now, but where you've lived in the last five years. Now, somebody is from a socioeconomically deprived area. You're going to be able to ascertain that by looking at their addresses. And you might make assumptions based on the, those addresses. Same thing with educational background. You know, the, you, all of these things and make, people make judgment calls on. If you're not from an Ivy League school and you put down there for you're from a city college, what I'm saying is all of these things help people make Judgment calls and make assumptions. Oh, oh all right. I, what? A couple Which is things not here. good for diversity. What, right. Right. Well, one is yeah. if somebody has a long career record, you're going to kind of be able to make an assumption about their age. So whether they have their age or not, if they exactly. started in the industry 40 years ago, you're going to say, oh, this person's probably not 25. But I kind of go back to what's the point of gathering this information. and. I'm not sure keeping it as it sounds like you're making you want you would propose Peggy making it so generic that I don't know what you what you would even ascertain from the information if you don't want to know their their college, their age, their criminal. But they're not record. applying for a job, Jeff, right? They're applying it, to this be is registered for a licensed. in the industry. Right. Yeah, for right, a license. Right. You've to sell already been you you or do work a, in a back office. So exactly. now all that stuff would be when I apply to Merrill Lynch or Raymond James or whatever, well, they collect all that information. So that, that's that's the difference, right, Peggy, or a difference? Yes, yes, that is that is absolutely right. You've already had been interviewed, most likely, and then they have to do in order to look at your records in the what's called the Central Registration Depository. The CRD is where they store the information by. If you've been licensed by your social security number and you have a designated CRD number, they can, you can get authorization from the potential employee to look at that. So you can see information that's been stored on their website, on, on the FINRA so CRD. If this information doesn't have any impact on getting hired and it doesn't have any impact on a retail investor hiring you, what difference does it make how much information FINRA has? I don't, I don't know. And quite honestly, all the protocols for cybersecurity and confidentiality of information, I have never been asked to sign anything that was distributed by FINRA to say they have my information and they won't distribute it. Right. But what I'm saying is what, what does FINRA do with this information that could potentially be discriminatory? Well, uh, that's a good question. Why do they need to have it? No, no, but I, I'm asking you, if you don't want FINRA to have it, you, but you're saying you don't want them to have it because it could be discriminatory, how can it be discriminatory well, if it doesn't I mean, affect if, your hiring? If they, if they talk about quotas, I mean, if they talk about you know inclusion and see that a firm has X amount of people that are you know, Caucasian that have blue eyes and yeah, blind. I know, but that happens at the firm level, not at FINRA. Not but if FINRA level. takes this information too, 
I know, they but take, they take this information perhaps to match it up with the fingerprint card to have a running history on the individual because every time you join a firm, you have to fill a new one out. It's no longer valid. Yeah, I, I understand this, but just try and follow along here with what I'm trying to ask. What difference does it make at the firm level where the discrimination could potentially happen if FINRA is just tracking all this information? It's like the Census Bureau. They got all this information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your company is going to discriminate because the Census Bureau knows what your race and weight is. Well, but the firm still has to sign off on this. It has to be approved by a principal, an authorized person of the firm who may review this. He may not have asked all these questions when he interviewed the potential employee. And therefore, this might open up more doors. This might open up Pandora's box. Yeah, I mean, I could, uh, Jeff, I could see a situation getting back to to Peggy here. I mean, I'm, I live up in, you know, I live in Manhattan. I live in Northern Manhattan. What if I was applying for a job in the securities industry and people know that I live in a neighborhood that is, you know, very Latino or very black or something and when I'm applying for that job, right? Um, that's part of just the, the whole filter that the U4 cre- creates. Right. But aren't you saying that If I'm following you guys correctly, aren't you saying that the company where you're applying, they would hire you and regardless of what your FINRA data says, and obviously if you're interviewing with someone, I'm assuming they're going to be able to look at you and determine, you know. Maybe maybe they could determine, maybe they can't determine. Maybe you look one way and you are something else. So what I'm saying is that they are looking, they review your U4 form too. I mean, a company does look at, because they have to sign off on it. And if there's any gaps in it, you you know, you can't submit it. So there's information in here, which the firm that will be hiring you will also be reviewing. So I think, you know, I mean, those, the reason, why do you need that there? That's a good question. I don't know why that to me is the bigger question. Why does FINRA need that information? But it seems like it shouldn't have it. It seems like what you're saying is it's not having any impact on people being hired. You're just worried that I guess after someone's hired or throughout the hiring process, they can find out that you live in a bad neighborhood. Or there are certain questions, you know, you can ask somebody, how much do you weigh or, you know, what your gender is? You're not allowed to ask that. Yeah, well, Bruce asked me all the time what I weigh, so I, I'm going to need you in my corner. The big there, competition. Peggy. Yeah, we're, we're on a, we've got a weight loss challenge going. That's, well, well, I understand that. I mean, you know, what what was valid that they asked and what FINRA's real objective, their motto, what they're in business to do is to protect the investor and to have market integrity. Right. So mm-hmm. when they asked questions, whether their practices, the, the market practices are discriminatory in the broker dealer industry? The answer is no, because every single firm, no matter what, has to abide by the same rules. So it's not discriminatory in that. A market rule is a market rule. Okay, so there, there are definitely things that do not affect diversity, but there still is a lot of prejudice that goes on and a lot of exclusion. It, it's it's very, very, very simple. And asking for questions like this, you know, it just adds to, to it. It underscores. It feeds into it. Yeah, it right, feeds right. into it. I think I think Peggy, how long has the U4 been around? I mean, I, I can tell you I've been in the business since 1980. It's been in the business since 1980 and probably before but a much simpler version. They did not ask a lot of things that they ask now. It sounds like this is something, again, my experience with FINRA about on reporting about them for all, for decades, for two decades, you know, uh, FINRA just does things and then they keep doing them. And I think they forget why they do them, you know, like, yeah, I guess like any, in, it, it's a bureaucratic institution, you know. That it is. And it lives on its bureaucracy, and this 
it just sounds like this whole registration application and your work history just needs to be rethought. I mean, it, it is something, Jeff, if you consider, I mean, you know, it's marijuana is legal in Colorado. What if you want to be a broker in Colorado and you Well, what if somebody sold, has a bias you, against marijuana, yeah. whether it's legal or not? Right. So I just think as we are rethinking diversity, hopefully, in our country and rethinking these penal issues, you know, like marijuana, it sounds like institutions like FINRA need to kind of put their heads together and think about what they're asking people of, too. Jeff, you want to get the last word? Yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't quite understand why FINRA needs to know your eye color. Because it's FINRA. But but I do <laughs> I do still say, you know, to me, I would like as much information as possible right. on somebody that I'm going to let look at my, you know, and look take your care life of savings, savings. Your dad's life savings, right? Yeah, and if I yeah. want to sit there and say, I'd like to be the one to pass judgment on on whether or not you committed a crime. You know, it's not about whether or not I how people feel about marijuana. It's about the judgment that somebody had to to break the law. If marijuana is illegal in your state, it doesn't really matter that it's legal in California. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's I'm sorry, California, Colorado. It's actually legal in a lot of places right now. But <laughs> It's not here in North Carolina, though. I can tell you that. Probably not going to be for a while. Sounds, sounds like it, Jeff, with you, man. Where you coming from, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, like I said, I, I just I think I think it should be up to the the individual. Up to the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. The consumer to to make the to decide if they want to say I am happy with working with somebody with a criminal record or not. But like you were saying, Peggy, this isn't available to the consumer. And that to me is a, the bigger question. Well, and also, I mean, uh, you know, the truth is if things, if business was as it was years and years ago where people met in person and they talked in person, even if a person had done something in their lifetime, you know, they may, people change over a period of time. People are reformed. People, you know, go to jail and come out. <laughs> Look at Michael Milken, you know. Look at somebody like that who did something and then he's done good things. You know, so so uh, what I'm saying is that I think it's too simple to just use this. I think it has to be something between an employer and an employee. If it's securities related, that should definitely be disclosed. You know, obviously, if somebody was a murderer, I, I too, would not want them <laughs> to be doing <laughs> my investing for me. But I think that FINRA needs to look at the whole process and say, in terms of diversity and inclusion, what does this have to do with it? Right. I, I, I think that's a very fair point. Peggy, thank you so much for, for coming on the Investment News Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Okay, folks, now we're talking to Terry Shepard, co-president of the Carson Group. We're going to talk about some uh, new research they commissioned on women in the wealth management space. This is an interesting project. I talked to Terry about it a week or so ago and uh, wrote a story about it. And uh, I, I'm kind of fascinated by this because I've was i been playing the devil's advocate for a while about why there aren't more female RIAs. And you could argue that there are maybe systematic situations that prevent women from moving into and up the ranks at some of the wirehouses, but really anybody can set up their own RIA. But uh, Terry kind of opened my eyes to, to some of the reasons that there aren't more women moving into the RIA space and some of the things that can be done to, to maybe improve those numbers. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Yes. Thank you for having me, Jeff and Bruce. I appreciate it. Hey, Terry. Thanks for being here. Do you do you mind Terry giving us kind of a brief overview of the of the research that you guys worked on? Yes, absolutely. I would love to. This is obviously something that we at Carson care very much about, but this is more uh, than any one of us or one company. I mean, this is just an industry challenge that we have, and we've all talked about this for several years. And how can we? continue to get more women in our profession, it continues to be a challenge. So we really 
stepped back a few months ago and we said, let's do some research. Let's refresh and let's be very purposeful and add some precision to why exactly there aren't more women. And uh, we pulled together uh, about 49 women, excuse me, 59 women, and we really pulled them and asked them a lot of questions. And we did a survey. And then we had some follow-up sessions where we would really dive deeper. Uh, We had two 90-minute sessions where we would talk more in-depth about the challenges that they have. So right now, there's 18.1, you know, of our financial advisors in the U.S., are women, you know, and so there's obviously just a discrepancy in that number. And we want to get more. So this the survey really told us that women, uh, what are their biggest obstacles in getting in? They don't know what what jobs are available in financial services. It's not readily apparent. But the primary reason that we heard is that they did not want to go into sales. They didn't want to have to go out and pound the pavement and have hard conversations with people. And when we talked to the women in our study, they said that the primary reason that they did get into financial services is that they wanted to help people. And so if you take those two combined, like remove the sales aspect of it, but but promote that we want them to feel like they can help people. I think that that's a natural nurturing uh, state for women. And so we really want to take the sales aspect out of it and help them feel like there's there's opportunities to be a financial advisor in helping people and grow their business from there. Yeah, the um, just you said there's 18.1 women in financial financial advisors. Actually, 18.1 percent, right? Because that yeah, would be difficult being, being the point one woman out there. She'd really be working hard. Um, <laughs> the and, and just for, for for context, and I'm taking this from your research. That 18.1 percent compares to it's 2019 numbers. That's that is up slightly from 17.2 in 2018 and 15.7 in 2015. So obviously progress is being made, not as fast as people believe it, that it should be made. But I want to talk to you a little bit about this sales culture thing because you know a lot of people talk about sales and they think, well, commissions. We we don't want to have any of those nasty pesky commissions. But as you and I discussed, Terry. If you're going to be a financial advisor, if you're going to be an entrepreneur or you're going to work at a large firm, you know, within uh, a large financial planning firm, it's difficult to get around the concept of sales because even though sales might be associated with selling a product, prospecting is essentially sales. And how do you get women into these businesses, into these positions without having without requiring them to do some kind of prospecting and stuff like that? Yes. Well, there's a difference between having a woman own the business and lead the business and grow it, and then just getting more women into the profession. And I would say that right now, our focus is how do we get more women into the profession? Mm-hmm. We, can, we can help them learn to lead and grow from there. But to get more women in, it's really, this is where it goes to that teaming concept. And that we really want to have a lead advisor or a senior level advisor with the junior servicing advisor and in larger firms, you know, have a financial planner involved in that process as well. Because if they come in and they're part of a team, they gain confidence and and conviction about what they're doing and how they're serving. And they get that coaching and mentoring automatically uh, in that process. And we heard that resoundingly from the women that, that we had those deeper conversations with. They all love to work together in a team and uh, help people. And we, we that's really one of the main focuses that we, we talked about. What are What is one of the, um, you know, kind of gateway professions into being an advisor in your research that you're finding? And, can, and is there anywhere where people work beforehand? Yes. You know, we, we are doing another round of research here in the coming quarter. To go a little deeper, but one of the professions we talked a lot about was teaching. Obviously, teaching has been a challenge over the last year and a half. And I think that some women are open to considering other professions. Uh, But if you are a teacher, you're obviously comfortable in helping others. You're comfortable speaking and and presenting. And uh, you're you're part of the community. And so you have great connections. And that's a career 
uh, that we've been very interested in and we've seen be successful. Yeah, Edward Jones for years has drawn from teachers and retired policemen and firemen and the like as second career people into their brokerage. So, yeah, a great strategy. Talk to us a little bit about this this teaming concept and how much does this uh, kind of revolutionize the way financial planning firms operate now for the most part? I mean, how much change has to be done if if you're a you're a financial planning firm and you want to start recruiting more female advisors? Yeah, I believe that this concept really naturally comes to some people, uh, but others have to really have a focus on, on getting it implemented. With, if, if you're um, several advisors out there, um, you know, they're looking for a junior advisor to bring in and that's been a challenge. And I think that if you just talk about the fact that you want to bring someone in, coach and mentor them, I mean, encourage them to go get their CFP. I mean, that, that's obviously the, the right route because then they have the foundational information but then come and works alongside that advisor. If you are a female also, one of the things that we learned in our research, just to go a little bit further in, in one section is, you know, finding that work-life balance. As a working parent, you know, that can be a challenge. And one of the things that teaming also does is it has a natural built-in backup mechanism, right? So I think a lot of the, the women, when we did this research, they had challenges finding work-life balance, and that would cause stress. And, and then it impacted their ability to lead their organization. And one of the things that we really like about teaming and that concept is that it naturally builds in that foundational element that it frees up that senior advisor to continue to you know find that work-life balance because they have brought that other person in as part of that team to free up their life. And, and help them delegate and elevate more naturally so that they can be really who they need to be in their work life and their personal life. Mm -hmm. You interviewed, as you said, 59 female financial planning executives or wealth management executives for this research. Did, did, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things that, that, that they expressed that were I guess maybe things that help them or or that they, you know, they obviously got to the top. You know what I mean? Yes. So um, a, a few of our panelists, one of them, you know, had really, it was a succession model. So she had actually really come in and taken over the business from her father. And, and she's been very successful in that. And so her, her learnings were, very much she was a big advocate of the teaming concept because her father had really done that with her and it had been very successful and it really helped her naturally progress into asking for referrals and uh, building those relationships. And it helped her learn how to grow the business and maintain the business and, and proven to be really successful for her. Uh, another lady that was on our panel, she she uh, started her business. She started at a wirehouse and uh, she really felt like she hit a ceiling and that she couldn't grow within that business any further. And so she started her own RAA. And I think this is a great way to really speak at that breakout model, you know, and why the RAA space is such a great space for women who want to own their own business and drive that success because she uh, had been successful in, in, that world. And so she broke away, started the RAA for herself, and she was able to grow it pretty quickly. She's got six people in her office and um, it's proven to be really successful and she's growing. And a lot of hers, I mean, she's been, she hires quite a few women because uh, that's her, her passion is, is to help women manage money. And so she hires quite a few women on her team, but it's mixed. And um, she really has been successful because she's given a lot of flexibility and allowing for temporary work. She, she designs compensation models individually for each person that's there based on how they want to be compensated. So she's been very flexible. When you and I, after you and I talked a week or so ago, Terry, when I made the kind of the main focus of my story was the was the sales culture factor. And I know I, I just mentioned that, but I, I kind of want to go back to that. Like, I still think that 
at some point, if you're going to be, you know, a client facing advisor, you're going to have to do some, you know, what really amounts to sales, right? I mean, client yeah. prospecting is sales. Is that something that is being addressed through these teaming concepts as, you know, once you're comfortable with this and that and the other thing, and then, you know, everybody's, it seems like everybody at a, at a firm would be in some way responsible for bringing on clients, right? Absolutely, Jeff. I completely agree. And I think that the the main theme, it isn't like the sales culture what our group really defined that is, is that I got to hit some kind of sales quota. You know, right. nobody's helping me. I just got to go out down the pavement, talk to all my family, have uncomfortable conversations, and I've got to hit a quota by X date or I'm done. And, you know, that is the sales culture that we're talking about. And really what we're, what they want to focus on is how to have the right conversations. You know, I mean, we, we're a coaching company. And so that's a lot of, why we're wanting to do this research is how can we equip women with the right questions and the right conversations to lead uh, into a sale that is that is not just trying to meet quotas. So right. it, it's more about you know what can I uh, improve developer change for you? How mm-hmm. can we help you achieve your life goals? And and it's those types of questions and comments that we're really training to, to help equip those women to feel comfortable and confident to have the awesome conversations to, to move those people into clients. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is the way most women or more women will start entering the business as opposed to starting their own RIAs? The teaming concept is, is more of a, maybe a wider path. I do. I mean, I think that there are women who are very driven that can absolutely start their own RAA and be extremely successful. But I also would say, I think there's a lot of women that aren't, don't necessarily have that drive and that confidence, especially right out of college or, you know, at a younger age to just go and build something from the ground up. So we really want to, I mean, we want to focus on both of them, but we want to get more women in the profession. And it's not going to be always at that owner level. It's going to be at that support level. And then, you know, they can grow from there because once they come in, I mean, what I know with women and what I've seen is that they come in they, they and they're successful and they continue to move up because they are making an impact in the business. And then opportunity presents itself to, you know, whether there's a succession plan or, you know, something that allows them to take over. That's been a more natural path for women to be in leadership than to really start it in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. In the story I wrote, I quoted uh, Tina Powell, chief executive of C-Suite Social Media, as saying, there has never been a better time to be a woman in financial services. And obviously, I explained there's, there's more to that. There's context because she's looking at it from, from context, from you know, where we've been and where we are now. And when, when she said that to me, I, I thought, well, that's a pretty bold statement. And she could get a lot of pushback. But she basically highlighted that that comment on social media and got a ton of support for saying it. And I kind of like that idea. Instead of always looking at the glass as being half empty, or, or in this case, mostly empty, you know, she kind of looked at it as the opportunities are are there, and they are, you know, they're getting better. I mean, what what did you think of that? I I love that kind of an attitude. Yeah, I do. Well, first of all, I love Tina Powell. I mean, she is an amazing woman. And, you know, their social media, especially through COVID, I mean, there have been some women that have really stepped up on social media. And if there's anything that women need, it's connection and community. And there have been some ladies who have just really stepped up and I think really brought all of this to light. And so when Tina makes a statement like that, I do believe that women, we're seeing the broader picture of how many women there really are in our profession and how we need to kind of come together to continue to gain that community, that commitment to doing something about this. And I think that there, as as much as we want the 18.1% number to grow and get bigger, to your point earlier, I mean, it has grown over the last three years. Mm-hmm. We are in an upswing. And, um, you know, there's a lot to celebrate. And so let's take the things that we've been doing the last several years here and let's just 
continue to make it more front of mind and top of mind for for other women and encourage them to do their part in doing more. I will say that I didn't really, I mean, I'm here at Carson. There's a lot to do. All of us have a lot to do in our lives every day, right? And when you're balancing home and work, I think you have even more distractions that you're not necessarily thinking about. I need to help make a difference for other women in my in the industry. And so I think that when you have people like Tina Powell that's going out and encouraging and saying things like that, you realize how many other women are like, hey, I believe in that too. And I want to help. And I, I, there's just an awareness that goes with that, that we all very much need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Bruce, anything else for Terry before we shift over to the, uh, the big uh, $1 billion question? No, that's what I wanted to ask Terry about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Terry. So you guys at Carson Wealth, Carson Group had a very interesting transaction this week. Just wanted to know, I don't know what your ability is to speak about it or, or what you can say, but you know, specifically or generally, I think it's a really interesting deal. Congratulations to you guys on this, but Bain Capital essentially valued the firm at at a little bit or or above a billion dollars and bought a 30 roughly 30% stake and rebought the bought out the preceding um uh, investor if i have that that right so if there's anything you can say about the deal specifically or the deal more in general for for what what it means for the industry and and the like yes you know Bruce, thanks for bringing it up. You know, we're we're all thrilled here at Carson Group. We're so excited. You know, our mission is to be the most trusted for financial advice and really build out our ecosystem, help our partners to ultimately serve clients. And Longridge is the private equity firm who was with us before they came in about five and a half years ago. Right. And so we're very thankful for what they did. Bain Capital we really just feel like they're going to help take everything here to the next level. And the best thing about this entire process has really been that we've presented kind of the direction we're going and what we're doing. And and it very much aligns with the direction that Bain believes that we should go and uh, the value that we can continue to bring to our overall industry and profession. And so it's just, uh, we're very much aligned, very excited about the future. And obviously the the people at Bain Capital, you know, uh, incredible talent. And uh, so we're just really excited about leveling up into that next level and, and making a difference. Great. Jeff? I'm all set. Sounds, sounds great. I'm looking forward to, uh, I mean, obviously, Terry, you're as aware as anyone that uh, this Bain Capital relationship has probably got a time limit on it also, right? And that's the that's the future now, more private equity? I would say that time limits, I mean, the thing that we said, and this was the way it was with Longridge, you know, we're not into time, we're not we're not focused on any one big number. I think that we've always focused on getting a strategic partner and a strategic investor that believes in what we're doing and believes in how we're doing it and that they're the best partner to help us get to where we want to be. And so there isn't a time limit on it. You know, we, we're very focused on not having goals that cause us to make compromises along the way to get to where we want to be. And I, we believe that Bain Capital is that perfect partner. We love their consultative approach and the way that they do business. And it just really fits into our overall culture and culture of collaboration in general. And the mm-hmm. client is first. And that's what we're really excited about. Well, the firm the firm has a lot of capital, has a big stack of capital for growth, right? I yeah. mean, that's what I was impressed out of this. Yes, very much so. I mean, we I would say that you know we've we've started to get into a lot of succession planning and M and A, and over the last couple of years, and that really is a model. I mean, if you look at the number of advisors in our profession, we're talking talking about trying to get more women in here, right? With the, what we talked about a few minutes ago, but there's a lot of succession happening and M&A is a big deal. And we want to make sure that the people who are exiting our profession, that those clients are well taken care of. So that is a model, you know, we've been investing in the next gen overall, whether it's women or DE&I initiatives to bring that next gen in to our profession so that we can do some succession planning for the, the people exiting. And so a lot of that financing is going to be around 
finding that great succession solution so that we can take care of that those uh, consumers and clients. So um, that's something that we're very excited about. Bain obviously has a lot of expertise and really levels up uh, anything that we're doing in that area. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, I was uh, I was trying to do some research uh, about a week ago on to find a large RIA that does not have some private equity ownership or is not already public, and there there not there aren't any out there. <laughs> That's why what's what I'm looking at next is you know like you said the private equity firms have money, they continue to push into this space. At some point, these big RIAs got to start kind of buying each other. I'm wondering yeah. when that's going to happen. But I don't think it's going to happen at Carson Group because you guys got that brand spanking new shiny headquarters out there where I think Ron parks his jet in the garage every day or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a wonderful building. You guys need to come see it and we'll we'll host you. We I'm actually sitting out on the, the patio. We have a, a place called Nellie's, which is Ron's dog, but it's kind of like a, a bar and grill <laughs> patio on top of the building. We have a fire pit. But, you know, in all reality, we built this building, you know, for our partners to bring them in. I mean, this is a coaching and training facility. It's all built around that. And because that's what we want to bring. I mean, not just to Carson, but to the overall profession, you know, in our coaching community, we're here to help make a difference. You hear Rod say that every time that he speaks. It's not about just do it growing. It's not about us. It's about making a difference in, in our profession and the in the clients we serve. And so this building and everything we're doing here is all about what can we do to help make that difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when Ron sends that jet out to North Carolina to pick me up, I will come and visit you. Okay. <laughs> it's on my bucket list to get on Ron's jet. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll remember that. Okay. I'll fly coach. Yeah. <laughs> We have some and those and those uh, those offices sound a lot like the the investment news offices in Midtown, Jeff. Oh yeah, fire pits and you know yeah Nelly's Lounge and Nelly's lounges and everything. Yep. Yeah. Well, you got to work hard, but you got to have fun at the same time. So. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you, Jeff and Bruce. I appreciate you guys. Thanks. Well, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, that means it's time for another podcast, Jeff. We want to thank our special guests, Peggy Chait of Integrated Solutions and Terry Shepard of Carson Wealth. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find investment uh, the podcast at investmentnews.com. You can also find it at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review. And Apple, follow us on Spotify. Reach out to Jeff on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at PD News Guy. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to you next week.